This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Leanne Digny and I'm a researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA here in Dublin. I'm delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs, which aims to address, analyze and communicate to the wider public the EU's role in the world and Ireland's role in the multilateral order. A particular priority of the Global Europe project is Ireland's term as a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council, which began in January 2021 and ends in December 2022. I am very pleased to be joined today by the permanent representative of Ireland to the United Nations, Ambassador Geraldine byrne Nason, who has kindly agreed to share her reflections on Ireland's time on the Security Council thus far. So Ambassador, welcome. Thank you, Leanne. As you are well aware, the opportunity to sit on the Security Council as an elected non-permanent member does not come around very often. Ireland was last elected to the Council in 2001, so it really is a rare and special opportunity to sit at the top table of global diplomacy and to contribute to the work of the Council in maintaining international peace and security. So what do you think has been Ireland's biggest achievement on the Security Council so far? Thanks, Leanne. Well, uh, you asked me a big question as I'm literally within days of the end of my tenure here as Ireland's ambassador on the council. You called it the top table of global diplomacy. Absolutely. Testing place. And I have to say a place I've come to see as defined really by a sort of imperfect power politics. Um, but what I'm most proud of, I guess, in terms of Ireland's um, own performance on the council, and I believe this will be the case till the 31st of December this year, is that we have worked assiduously to remain true to our principles. I mean, there are many examples uh, of this, and I'll mention a couple now, but I think the authenticity of Ireland's voice, uh, its unique voice, and the fact that we have been guarded in terms of our effort to protect our values and our principles and to express them through our membership as an elected, and I don't like calling ourselves non-permanent, we're an elected member, um, have really been quite outstanding. So maybe I'll just touch on one or two, if that's okay with you, Leanne. You know, in the last few weeks, um, day, I was working day and night alongside our, our really fantastic team in New York and Dublin, um, in tandem with the ambassador of Norway and her team, to negotiate the renewal of the critical Syria humanitarian cross-border resolution. We know there are 4.1 million people in northwest Syria, almost the population of Ireland, um, who are relying on that corridor um, behind a crossing called Bab al-Hawa uh, in uh, the crossing between Turkey and Syria. Um, they rely on that crossing for humanitarian aid, practical human impact there of getting a resolution across the line of the Security Council to save lives. It's quite simple. And the political context this year of that negotiation was extraordinarily difficult. Uh, as listeners will know, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine complicates everything, to put it simply. It certainly now has led to a, a rather dysfunctional relationship um, where the permanent members of the council have trouble speaking and barely speak. 
in some cases barely speak to each other. So finding a path to renew that critical resolution for six months was a really considerable achievement. That's just the most recent one that I would uh, reference. Um, I think, you know, if those who watched us do this work will have seen that we had a forced, if I can call it that, a first, a forced Russian veto on the very first resolution that Ireland and Norway put on the table in that exercise. And that may have appeared out to the outside world as a bit of sort of political point scoring. But to be honest, what it did here in New York was a big uh, pressure release valve um, that actually brought us to the landing zone for a critical result. Last year, we managed to negotiate a 12-month renewal. This year, the choice was between zero mm -hmm. and a six-month renewal. And I'm delighted that humanity prevailed, that Ireland and Norway, in what I, I say is, I think, a considerable achievement, uh, brought this across the line and now gives certainty that food, medical aid, get to those four million people. Um, two other things I'll briefly mention in terms of achievements, if I may. I can't not speak about the current situation in relation to Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine. And a moment I'll never forget was sitting in the Security Council chamber on the night um, when uh, we were at an emergency meeting of the Security Council and the war began. Um, all our phones lit up uh, with various credible and not so credible sources telling us that Putin had announced a special military operation. But I was sitting just two or three seats away from the Secretary General as he made this heartfelt plea I'd never seen him do before on camera to Putin not to begin the aggression. And uh, he literally put his head in his hands as the news came across all our telephones. Ever since that, I think the real achievement, um, although of course the war uh, goes on and the challenges are extraordinary around it, the achievement, I think, in relation to that um, for Ireland sitting at the table is that we have been a clarion, crystal clear voice on defending the UN Charter and standing up for international rule of law. And Minister Simon Coveney uh, did something rather extraordinary. Um, he was the first uh, foreign minister to visit wartime, wartime uh, Kiev. And he came immediately straight back into the Security Council from that horrendous eyewitness moment he had in Bucha uh, with the, the horrible massacres there. He came to the council table and spoke to the reality of what was happening on the ground. Also recognizing early on as a country that we were facing into a global food um, market impact as we saw it then, now crisis as we know. Um, Ireland convened the first ever Security Council meeting on that subject, a watershed moment in the context of Ukraine. So as I say again, sometimes from the outside, it appears this is an ongoing, not, um, not developing situation. Ireland's achievements from Minister Coveney's arrival at the table to our working hard on food security issues, bringing the highest levels of political attention really matter. And then the final thing, uh, if I may, Leanne, is, um, but not in any way third, is uh, that we're just very now, now on the cusp of the anniversary of the takeover of Kabul by the Taliban. And since that horrendous uh, moment week last year, um, we have spoken out uh, without fear or favor uh, in terms of the human rights and the defense of human rights, particularly of women and girls in Afghanistan. Um, 
Ireland has always said, we'll judge the Taliban by what they do, not by what they say. And I think we're seeing the real results of that now. Their actions are speaking of absolute contempt for the international community, more importantly, for the human rights of Afghan women in particular. And, um, you know, Ireland has made uh, absolutely a dedicated effort, painstaking effort, particularly behind the scenes here, to insist that the derision that the Taliban bring to, to their international community and their behavior is reflected in the response here. And we have worked on particularly the mandate for the UN mission in Afghanistan, making sure that the courageous Afghan women are looked after in terms of the UN's mandate and role. We've also brought significant change to the regime um, that uh, allows sanctioned uh, Taliban leaders to travel. So we're working hard. There's a, a, an achievement, I would say, that's not maybe as obvious to the Irish public, but that takes a lot of our dedication and is true to that authentic voice, Leanne. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, you've just spoken there of the, the power politics that you've witnessed and the difficult dynamics on the council that exist now. So what impact do you think Ireland has had as a small state on the council? It's a challenging uh, situation to arrive into uh, that horseshoe table. But, you know, small states are natural mediators, particularly in a context where I think the great power politics, strategic uh, competition infuses so much of what the council discusses, but is now in so much difficulty. So I think we may have uh, arrived, uh, while it looks from the outside like a perfect storm, at an ideal moment for small states acting on the council. I can certainly say an excellent illustration of that is what I've just spoken about in the case of Ireland and Norway leading on the Syria humanitarian file. But I also think that small states bring a new perspective um, and a new expertise to the table. And one area where we have illustrated that in a very concrete way, I think, has been um, in strengthening the council's mandate in the area of UN peacekeeping, where, of course, Ireland has this long and honourable, almost revered tradition, I would say, at the at the UN. It's more than 60 years um, since we've been involved in our, our active peacekeeping. What we did was we brought the first ever resolution to the UN Security Council on peacekeeping transitions. Um, what I'm talking about there is really a transition, the moment where the UN has to prepare for the departure of the peacekeepers and the installation of a very complex and reconfigured UN operation on the ground to take its place. Pinch point, risk moment, particularly where the protection of civilians becomes an issue. Ireland has done extraordinary work there in the delivery of a resolution that was co-sponsored by a remarkable 97 members of the UN. I think that's a real testament to uh, what Ireland uh, and our, our tradition and peacekeeping means, but also as a, as a gesture and a contribution, more importantly, to the future of peacekeeping. So it's a legacy issue for Ireland, I think, on the Council. I'd also say in relation to small states that permanent members at their peril, I would say, sometimes underestimate the ability of small states to stick to their guns uh, under pressure. And for, you know, an example I would give you is that quite a few of the permanent members, not the usual suspects only, uh, were a bit shocked when we st stuck to our guns and were ready to go to a vote on the resolution we prepared with Niger last December on climate and security. 
um, even though it was contentious and at times debate was, was extraordinarily difficult, I think some expected that as a small state we might back down in face of the wall ahead, uh, but we learned uh, to be bold and we uh, gained huge support from the General Assembly for that. Um, small states, I think, have that singular benefit of being elected members of the Security Council. The backing of the General Assembly goes with us to that uh, big table. And it confers for me a, a sort of legitimacy um, to our sitting at the Council table. Um, twice in our term, we've reached back so far, maybe my successor will reach again. Twice so far, we've reached back into the GA to give that ballast to our effort at the Security Council table. One I've mentioned um, already on climate and security and the other on peacekeeping. Each time the GA came up trumps, they came up in huge numbers to our side, reflecting, I believe, their belief in the members they elect to the table. And I'll finish off on the small state issue by just touching on, can't not mention the veto, Minister Simon Coveney, the most uh, articulate um, opponent, I would say, of the veto. And we, of course, follow and his guidance here daily on this. The veto is a major challenge. It doesn't arise often, but when it does, it threatens the critical work that we're doing. Um, let's be clear, you know, uh, Ireland and North Niger's resolution on climate and security, as I said, co-sponsored by 113 members of the UN. That's the majority of the General Assembly, strong majority uh, wanted this to pass. One member state, in this case it was Russia, vetoed it. And therefore, uh, while the majority of countries in the UN said the issue matters, uh, climate change, global security issue, um, one country saying no, said no for everybody. And I think that, you know, we saw the second time it happened in Syria. So that's a massive challenge to small member states, not just to our work, but I think it also brings into question the... Uh, the legitimacy and the legacy of the Security Council more broadly. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Um, you yeah, you've mentioned there working with Norway, for example, on the, the resolution on Syria. How did you find working with partner countries such as Norway on these specific files? Well, look, we have had um, absolutely excellent uh, cooperation with all of the members, and I can say that with all 14 other members of the Council uh, on a daily basis. However, we face big challenges with some, and then we have some particular partners. Two, I would mention Norway, you've mentioned, and I'll also mention Mexico. Just to say it's really important as you sit at that top table of diplomacy that you recognize from day one, which we did, that to be effective, you need to build coalitions. Fact is, every resolution needs nine votes. And that's a mathematical bottom line, a hard bottom line. Um, of course, it's, it's mathematical, it's not a diplomatic issue, but you can't ignore the realities. And the two countries, uh, Mexico and, and Norway, helped us uh, pivotly uh, during our time to build coalitions. Um, Mexico, I'll start with, for example, the work we did there with Mexico, particularly on the informal expert working group on women, peace and security, we co-chaired that with Mexico. It's actually one of the most divisive and, and sometimes toxic issues, remarkably, uh, in the Security Council. So it was a big political lift 
And I think a global North, global South partnership like Ireland and Mexico had coming together brought that uh, agenda into action. Um, what we did was we, we had a shared ambition, simple enough, move away from rhetoric, bring it to reality. And sometimes that meant just making sure the resolutions on women, peace and security are actually being rolled out and implemented. Sounds a bit diplomatically technical, but actually it's not. It, it really was a sort of a golden thread, if I can use that term, which ran through everything. And I really mean everything we have done on the Security Council. Our view was that where there's a peace table, women need to be in that room and at that table. And when we're talking about building peace, and I don't mean an overnight moment, it means a long investment in a sustainable peace. We think we're not serious if we're not working to unleash the power of women. Systematic representation of women, non-negotiable. That's been the view of Mexico and Ireland as we've worked. And certainly Mexico has leaned right into our own knowledge from our history in Northern Ireland, the critical role that women played in the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition. So we've had a fellow traveler, if I can use that term loosely, as we fight this fight. Um, and I just wish there wasn't so much work to do there, but it's been a tremendous partnership. And then to mention Norway, um, that's been one of the signature relationships we have had. And it's certainly, as I finish my term here, is one of the relationships and the complicity of a relationship that has marked my tenure. Uh, as I leave, I'll remember this um, particularly. It's been a remarkable partnership, not just here in New York, through the Dublin and Oslo, but very importantly, I think, maybe uniquely, we've seen it at political level. So our ministers, our foreign ministers, Minister Simon Coveney and two foreign ministers of Norway now have worked extremely closely. They both went together again recently, for example, to the Syrian border in June. And um, we almost became between the, the foreign ministers, Dublin, Oslo, and our teams here in Europe, a one team operation. It, it required that because of the dynamic and the, the complexity of the issue, but it actually was a remarkable experience as diplomats where we felt we could almost exchange notes. Early morning, late night, our teams fully uh, um, woven together here in New York for that big project. And Ambassador Mona Yule, with whom I just shared some of these reflections last night, is ad idem on this. Uh, we, we competed on an election trail, never imagining we would come together in such a couple uh, on the council. And I'd like to think when we look back at our tenure, that relationship will stand out. And I hope going forward in our foreign policy uh, evolution, we both shared this here in New York, that our capitals will, will uh, leverage that and that we will grow a relationship in the future based on what we've done on the council. Absolutely. Um, so I just wanted to ask you as well, NGOs often play a really important role within the UN system. How is the work of NGOs channeled into the work of the council? Well, look, you know, I have to say from the very get-go, even before we went uh, into our role on the council, we knew that Ireland's vision for how the council responds to peace and security challenges must be rooted in listening 
to grassroots, to civil society voices. And this is one of the, the many lessons I must say I both professionally and personally learned from Mary Robinson, um, President Mary Robinson, who is the most ardent advocate and most knowledgeable, I have to say, uh, interlocutors with grassroots voices, particularly in her case, uh, in the past on, on human rights issues and now very much on climate issues. During Ireland's presidency of the Security Council last September, we really uh, shone a light on our commitment to civil society engagement. And we brought different perspectives um, on familiar crises uh, to the council table in a, if I can be blunt about it, in a record setting way for a presidency month. We heard voices from the field, women's voices, peace builders, activists. They brought absolutely vital perspectives. Um, there were 16 women out of the 17 civil society briefers we brought to the table. That was a record number of women civil society briefers ever in a single month, a record that still holds, I can say. Um, but that's not the only way that we have infused our work with non-governmental organizations and the richness of their, both their perspective and their experience. I regularly hear meet with an umbrella group of non-governmental organizations uh, called the NGO Working Group on the Security Council. They're hugely invested. They follow on a daily basis the business of the council. That has been very productive and fruitful as, a, as a, an interactive exchange as we moved across our time on the council. And I know in Dublin, a highlight for Ivy House and for the Foreign Ministry, it's no longer only Ivy House, of course, um, uh, for the Foreign Ministry, uh, in Dublin has been the close work with the IIEA on the NGO Stakeholder Forum. I've met many members and I know how much they value the work, hearing the views, harnessing, um, also harnessing the, the expertise of Irish civil society and academia has absolutely enriched the work of um, headquarters. And I know the minister puts a huge premium on that relationship. And very often when he's in New York, his reflections and uh, the, the messaging he has taken back from those engagements, our political director, Sonia Highland equally, that comes absolutely front and center into the way we approach our business. So a critical partnership and one that's marked our tenure here in the most positive way, I have to say. Critical indeed, yeah. Um, we, we've already mentioned, of course, that Ireland's term on the UN Security Council will end in December. Um, a lot has been achieved and you've highlighted a lot of different achievements. What can Ireland do now in the months ahead to have a lasting impact on the work of the Security Council? Well, first of all, um, as you know, uh, the way that we have, uh, we have worked so far means that we will uh, be working right up until midnight on the 31st of December. So that's when our term ends and there will be absolute uh, full uh, team on board and full energy until then. We want to maximize our impact up to the very last minute. Look, every single day, there are peacekeeping mandates that need to be adapted or renewed. Numerous regular meetings ongoing on crisis that we, we know, like Yemen. Yesterday, the Middle East peace process was being discussed. And of course, the reality is, as we've seen with Ukraine, as we saw with the Afghanistan, there will be unexpected crisis to which we will need to respond at short notice. Um, at a few hours short notice again, just yesterday, there was an emergency discussion 
discussion on the deteriorating situation in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But of course, we're planning as well, not just waiting to react. And we have plans to continue the important work I mentioned earlier on transitions, building on that really a groundbreaking resolution that we passed last year. So, of course, we will maximise that in the months ahead. Um, away from the Security Council, of course, and I'll be watching this from another perch, there will be that big high-level week in September where world leaders will, will converge on New York. I expect our own political leaders will be here um, working hard to engage with uh, their counterparts and very much in demand as, as experienced and influential members of the Security Council uh, during September, uh, just around the corner. And then I have to say, of course, there is in, in the period between September and the 31st of December, the unknown unknowns. Uh, sometimes we can jump in and take leadership where it's not really planned at all. And an example of that in the last few weeks here has been when Shireen Abu Akhla, the journalist, the Palestinian journalist was killed in Jenin. Ireland decided to shine a light on the urgent issue of the protection of journalists. And um, not an issue that's brought uh, with any regularity at all to the Security Council. And we convened an ARIA formula meeting within days of her death. And that allowed the council to be briefed by the media organizations, including Al Jazeera, her employer, on the killing of Shireen and the dangers that journalists face uh, every day uh, on the world stage. So it was something that brought the global attention of journalists um, to, I think, the active responsibility of the Security Council to protect them. And it remains, um, it remains a consideration for us. I just mentioned her case again in the debate on the Middle East in the Security Council yesterday. So as you can see, from the unknown challenges to the plans that we have, there's an active agenda leading right up to midnight on the 31st of December. Absolutely. Um, as you've just said, by its very nature, the work in the UN and particularly on the Council can be quite unpredictable. Um, so I'm just wondering what unexpected challenges did you face in your role as permanent representative of Ireland to the UN? Well, I have to ask Leanne, how much time now do we have? <laughs> <laughs> There's um, so many challenges um, and, you know, so many of them are unexpected. Look, the global pandemic, COVID not planned, uh, campaigning uh, for election, which was a huge part of the five years, at least very considerable part of my five years here. And we campaigned in the end in a virtual world that hadn't been done before, responding to a war of aggression by a permanent member of the Security Council on a small neighbor in our own neighborhood. Um, absolutely unexpected. The fall of Kabul, who saw that? And uh, not even the, the major powers on the ground. So totally unexpected. Then I'll jump around and tell you that from day to day, uh, we're trading favors to get the right spot on a speaking list so that our points are actually relevant to the ensuing discussion at the council. We have to fight every day uh, for the human rights of women when they're coming under attack. I had the extraordinary experience uh, of two aircraft emergencies in Mali on the only trip uh, where the, uh, the Security Council traveled during our tenure, the only trip so far. My successor may uh, take one in, in the autumn, but uh, the only trip was to um, the Sahel and we had, you know, uh, an emergency landing uh, twice in uh, in Mali. Um, and then I 
to be honest. I'm a mother and a wife. And one of my unexpected challenges was making sure my then high school son completed his homework and now um, graduate of NYU son got his uh, assignments in early. So uh, from the big to the small, it's been a hugely challenging time. But, you know, if I could just on a more serious note, perhaps say to you the biggest singular challenge I've had as um, Ireland's ambassador here was the untimely death and loss of our deputy permanent representative, the late Jim Kelly. Jim died on St. Patrick's Day, totally unexpectedly here. He was a consummate diplomat, hugely experienced in UN affairs, um, a great Dubliner, a man of common sense and Dublin wit, um, and a true family man. He was at the heart of our UN family team at the mission here. And losing him was undoubtedly the most unexpected and most difficult challenge I faced. I miss him, the team misses him every day. And I just hope that the way we've continued our work reflects in some small way on the brilliance and the, the, the heartwarming contributions that Jim brought to all of us during his time with us here. Yeah, a really heartbreaking loss. Um, thank you for that. I, I, I just have one final question. What has been your proudest moment then while sitting as Ireland's permanent representative at the UN? Well, look, it's been the privilege of a lifetime to be Ireland's ambassador, uh, to be the ambassador of one's country at the UN. It has to be a highlight of any diplomatic career. And I filled very big shoes here. My predecessor, David uh, Donoghue, who was quintessentially associated with negotiating the Sustainable Development Goals. My predecessors on the Security Council, um, both Richard Ryan, who was there in uh, the last term and before him, Noel Dorr, um, both you know, ambassadors with, with a huge reputations here. There are lots and lots of big moments at the Security Council which stand out. Um, places where we had real impact, where we made a difference, I believe, for people on the ground who faced the terrible reality of, of living life in conflict. And I've touched on those in our conversation, but the truth is none of what we did on the council would have been possible if we hadn't won what I would say arguably was the most competitive security council election in the history of the UN. And as I say farewell to my colleagues here this week in, in New York, this comes up again and again. It now lives on in the lore of the UN that, um, that Ireland and Norway came through um, in, with the support of two thirds of the member states of the UN in the first round of the race of death, as it was known um, in the Security Council. We, we poured as a team here, our, we poured our heart and soul into that election campaign. The entire Department of Foreign Affairs uh, was led the campaign out of Dublin, led by our best diplomats across the globe and at headquarters, and importantly, critically, our political system invested in this hugely. Taoiseach, President Thonish, the Foreign Minister, so many who wore the green jersey I've mentioned, President Mary Robinson Bono, still mentioned here uh, with great admiration, uh, coming to speak to Ireland's values and principles and to the courage we would show, which now I'm happy to say we validated during our term. So for Ireland to win that election, um, the magical moment, frankly, uh, in June of 2020, when the results came through, 
um, two thirds of the world voting for Ireland, not every day as a, as a citizen of our wonderful island that you can say that that happens. And certainly um, I'm deeply proud of that moment uh, when we, when our, the faith of two thirds of the countries in the world was put in Ireland's ability to speak for the oppressed and to protect international law. And I'll add, if I may, Liam, at the end, because I can't leave this out, I became the first Irish woman to sit at the Security Council. Ambassador Ann Anderson was a very, very illustrious ambassador here in New York as the first Irish woman, represent, permanent representative, but I came the first seat as an Irish woman, and very importantly, the first Drogheda woman to sit at the UN Security Council in that role. I hope I won't be the last of either. Um, we have a loud contingent in the department and they have my full support going forward. But um, seriously, the moment when Ireland was offered the opportunity to go to that top table of global diplomacy, imperfect as it may be, with the challenges we've faced, the pushbacks we've had, extraordinarily proud we were given that opportunity. Such an amazing achievement. Um, on that note, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Ambassador. We really look forward to following Ireland's work during its final few months on the Security Council, even if you won't be there in person. Um, so if anyone would like to learn more about the Global Europe Project or other work by the, by the IIEA, you can check out our website and social media. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project.